King to the shores of America, the sky that's a pillar, the alpha and the mega, the home of the beggars, the black settlers, who've been beaten, weightless, robbed, and stoned, the call of on the earth for service that they couldn't maintain at home. This dates back to 1555, when they captured the first tribe of men, and piled them in a pen, 50 feet high, and took them all on the 9,000 mile ride. They landed on the shore, a place they'd never seen before, we read about this inside the ancient books of war, bondage and stainless steel, stripped of their language, still survived the anguish of slavery, but still remain nameless, separated to portions, a chick by John Hardy Hawkins, and sold on the auction, tore birth control and abortion, rulers of the first part, became slaves of the worst part, the devil's curse God, and reverse God, it turned God to dog, and made people so tired, no relief came to the prophet, or W.D. Farad, taught trauma, dropped our mamas off in Bahamas, and Barbados, Tobago's, separated us from slave boats, made our own brothers hate us, from Virgin Isle to Jamaica, Trinidad, Honduras, Haiti, Grenada, Bermuda to Cayman, mental enslavement. Welcome back to episode 99 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. Before we get into this episode, a little housekeeping, um, I want you to visit my website, which is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. You can see my show archives there. You can see all of my links to my Instagram. You can see the links to my YouTube. You can see the links to my Etsy store. And you can see my email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. And uh, again, you can see all of the episodes broken down. Uh by category and there's links on the side so if there's a topic that interests you you click and it'll take you to the podcast that contains that that uh keyword so that's really important Uh, again every all of this content now is going up to youtube i'm trying this out new because you know it, it could be time consuming to do the podcast and i'm trying to work the podcast and the youtube together and it's a lot of work so what i'm doing is i'm shooting this on uh you know, on a small camcorder, a cheapie, a little little uh, Canon that I have, and I put a nice Rode mic on it so that um, I can do double duty, two things at once. I can make the recording. As I said it before, I could put the MP4 up onto YouTube, and the MP3, I can drop it down into my RSS feed, and it's cool. So I recommend anybody listening to these podcasts, you know, listen to them as you drive or whatever you do, but check them if you get a chance. If the subject interests you, check it on YouTube because there's going to be accompanying video that goes with it. Um, so kind of work with me with this. I'm, I'm working out the kinks and trying to do this as, as smoothly as possible. So let's get into this episode. Um, I'm, I'm done speaking. I'm going to play this clip. It's going to be approximately 56 minutes, 57 minutes. Uh, yeah, absorb it in, listen to it. Again, remember, breathe deeply, go deep into your meditation, okay? And don't attach to the hate and the shit that's being handed out today. Learning equals liberation. Knowledge equals liberation, okay? So, let's get into this episode. Here we go. Okay, the answer is yes. <laughs> And the question is... And the question is... Hmm, okay, how can we participate in the awakening of consciousness when we are back in our everyday life? And that's from joy. You know, I, I am asked that question all the time. Where do you draw the line between your spiritual life and the rest of the world and, and your everyday experience? And I'm going to tell you, the moment you draw the line, you have fallen into the ancient trap of separation and polarity that keeps you separate from the very thing that you love and cherish the most, and that is life itself. So from my perspective, everything that happens is part of your spiritual path. It is impossible. And the awakening, it is impossible for you to experience anything that is not part of the awakening. It's all in our perceptions and how we perceive those experiences. So that's the question. I think um, we're living in such an amazing time right now. I mean, if you are not being challenged in some way in your life, you're not alive. And all of this is an initiation. 
And I don't believe that you have to go to any school of ancient wisdom perched in the Himalayas or for information or training any longer. If you see your life as the school, as the initiation, then you can no longer be a victim to your life. You're going to have to meet the challenges in your life from a greater level of mind, greater than the mind that created it. And so there have been plenty of peer-reviewed articles on the power of peace-gathering projects, that lower crime, that lower trauma incidences of, of uh, death and, and economic growth. It's all related to what's happening right now for us. And it's not enough, though, for us to just focus on peace and expect the world to change. Because in the peace-gathering projects, when the event was over, a lot of the crime and violence return back to its ceiling level again. It's more important for us not only to embody that peace and feel it, but then to demonstrate it. And when we begin to demonstrate it, I think we give people permission to do the same. That means that we can't be preaching peace and then be stuck in traffic and, you know, flipping people off or you know, or arguing with your coworker, you don't get to stand up for peace if you have conflict in your life. So when we start, I believe, start that self-contemplative process of looking within, and instead of judging someone or something, look to see if there's an aspect of ourselves within that person or within that situation that we may need to change. And if we're all doing that at the same time, something greater, greater consciousness is going to emerge. And so I believe that it should never be about a person. It should be about principles. And when we stand up for principles, that creates community. Because you could be one belief or another belief, but if you're sharing the same principles, which are joy and freedom and cooperation and connection, that's what builds communities. So then, everything in our world right now is reminding us of separation. Whether it's war, whether it's violence, whether it's uh, political deceit, whether it's prejudice, all of those things cause us to live by those stress hormones. And when we're living in that state of survival, we're not trusting and we become more selfish. So then, starting our day asking ourselves, what would be the greatest expression of myself I'd like to present to the world? And then making the choice to not get up until we are that person. I think that begins to demonstrate greatness. And when there is adversity and when there are challenges in our life, the question, of course, becomes, how do we become supernatural? And that means we're going to have to do what feels unnatural at first. When everybody else is in poverty and lack, that's the time to give. When everybody else is in fear and vigilance, that's the time to show courage. When people are angry and hating and prejudiced, that's the time to show compassion. When people are competing to rush to get to the top, that's the time to change your energy and draw the experience to you. And if you keep doing what's unnatural over and over again, sooner or later you're going to become supernatural. And then what happens is that we have neurons in our brain called mirror neurons, and those are empathy neurons. And you know when you fed your kid as a child, you went like this? You don't know why you were doing that, but you were unconsciously or subconsciously asking them to mimic your behavior. And they look at you and they follow your actions. And so when you all of a sudden demonstrate greatness in your life, and I don't care if it's just letting somebody ahead of you in traffic, or helping someone up, or picking up a piece of litter or garbage, and people witness that, they're more prone to do the same. And so we begin to change the world, I believe, by changing ourselves. I, I got to thank my dos amigos because their, their answers are quite wonderful. If I just add something small to it, I'd just like to add this fact that time is perhaps one of the most important commodities in our life. And when you start losing time doing things that you don't want to do, you start cutting your life short. So there's times that we do things because it's habit, because it's protocol, uh, that's the way it's always done. And there are times where you can say, no, thank you. 
I really have, you know, I have something going, I have something doing, whatever it is, to extract yourself from a commitment, to free up your life, to give you that extra time for your personal life, because this is our personal opportunity to experience heaven on earth, and if you're going to give away all your time, you have nothing left. So I, I get, you know, I just went back when we were talking about it, the first time I did that, because I was thinking about uh, the whole concept of uh, energy and life and all that kind of stuff, and I realized, God, you know, I, I just want some more time, and one of my fellow uh, faculty members came into my office and said, Bruce, don't forget, there's a faculty party on Friday night, and I thought, I said, oh, crap. Uh, they're the most boring, waste of time things I've ever done in my life, and I just sat there in that one moment, just having thought about that, I said, Oh, geez, I'm so sorry. I have some important work I have to do, and I won't be able to attend. And he said, oh, okay, and walked out. And all of a sudden, I said, oh, my God, I got Friday night. It's all for me. <laughs> so I really want you to understand, we, we do things by habit uh, uh, and just programming, and yet you are a free agent. And when you really feel that it's not in your interest to do something, you have the right and the opportunity to disconnect, recover your life, and use it the way you want to use it. Friday night is not for faculty meetings. So I just want you to, to recognize it's choice, and you have freedom of choice. And the issue that uh, Greg uh, brought up as well is you, you don't want to antagonize somebody, so you always pull back. Uh, giving them credit, whatever it is. They want to say, oh, you guys are great, but I really can't do this or something like that. Uh, and there's an important reason why. Because infinity is, what number is infinity? And you give me a number and I say, no, I can give you one more than that one, and then we can go back and forth, back and forth, and get up higher and higher. There's a negative infinity too. And, and the idea is, if you are angry with somebody and you give them the last word, there is no last word. Because as soon as you think you've said the last word, you know something's going to have to come back. I found out the best way of resolving things is let the other person win. Let them win. If they call you a jerk, you go, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a jerk. Do <laughs> you know what the joy is in that? They can't come, I said you were a jerk. I said, yeah, I remember. <laughs> Don't play the game. So Greg, this one does have your name on it, so very fortuitous that you handed it back, thank you. Uh, the question is, does the mind create God, or does God create the mind? And this is from Dr. Neville Wilson. Joe, Joe just said he's glad I have this question. It's all about perceptions. You know, and God means different things to different people, and I, I know what the intent of the question is, but... Uh, it's all about how we perceive uh, what that question means to us. What the science tells us is there is a fundamental and unifying force in this universe. We call it whatever we want to call it. And throughout the ages, it's been called different things. And as the science delves deeper into the fundamental nature of, of our world in physics, we're finding out more about that force. Uh, and that force appears to, to have uh, an intelligence or a consciousness underlying uh, its very existence. So whatever attributes, this is the thing, it's so big we probably can't even talk about it. Because what we try to do is assign human attributes to uh, to our experience and the things that we don't understand. Our ancestors did that, we're, we're trying to do this today. So it, it's all about the perception of, of what the word God means to you. Uh, I have my personal perceptions. As a scientist on the stage, there's things I can say to you. Uh, that we know to be true, personally, uh, um, again, it's my opinion, it's my perceptions, but the, the mind uh, is always trying to make sense of our experience and of our reality, and I think this is, this is where we get into trouble, because through the ages, it is the different interpretations, different perceptions of this unifying fundamental force that have people say, you know, my perception is better than your perception, and we've got a world of religions battling over that right now. But what we know is this, Here, here's what the science is telling us. So in 2008, I released a book entitled Divine Matrix, 
actually they just put a new cover on it that I have never seen. And at the book table, somebody brought me this book to sign, and I said, that's not my book. And they said, they said it says it's your book, and I said, well, I've never seen this cover. It's, it's a new cover. But let me tell you, the 2008, I released the book, The Divine Matrix, and it was the science that is documenting existence of this unified field and our relationship to it. As we knew the science in 2008, that book was considered fringe science. Some people even called it pseudoscience in 2008. I went to my own hometown in Kansas City, Missouri, in the middle of, of America, to do a book signing, and my book was on what was called the occult bookshelf. On the, in the back, I had to go back and get my book to bring it forward. That was then. Now that book is required reading in the physics courses in Canadian and some American universities. Uh, Canadian professor. Thank you, Canadian. Thank you. A Canadian professor called me and he asked for permission. He has a course that is called Physics in Society. And he's using this as the, the basis for that. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because this field provides three functions. It is the container, the field that connects all things. It is the container for everything that happens in our experience. Nothing exists beyond this container. It's the container. It is the bridge between our inner and our outer world. And it is the mirror in our external world for what we claim to believe in our inner world. This is the field. So when we look at those functions of the field and we compare those to what our ancestors said God was all about, you see a tremendous parallel. Because the old traditions tell us that God knows everything that we're doing, that God uh, allows us to, to mirror our experiences, and that God is what connects all things. So the language is changing as we learn more but we know that there is some fundamental force, and the mind uh, is trying to, to give meaning to that. So that's, that's a, a long answer to a short question. And did either of you want to tackle that question? <laughs> <laughs> it's a no from Joe. <laughs> Bruce? <laughs> we can move along. We can move along. And actually, just, did you want to? Sure. Go for it. You're going to need a mic. Thank you, Mike. Okay. So this question is, if reincarnation exists, how is it possible to communicate with the spirit of a deceased person? Question mark. Where are they at that point? Question mark. And what is the relationship between that point and reincarnated life? And they put love hearts. They put love hearts. <laughs> Um, it's a very interesting and exciting question for me because as a scientist all my life I did not believe in spirituality and I was into genes and chromosomes and cells and all that stuff but in understanding the nature of that membrane that I talked about in the lecture uh, I started to recognize something which I'm going to talk about tomorrow as well and that is um, our identity is not inside our body our identity is picked up by protein antennas on the surface of our cells. The reality is our source is from the outside and the signals get picked up by the proteins and then control the cells on the inside. The significance for me at that moment besides the shock of, oh my God, I'm not in here, uh, <laughs> was the simple reality that I said, oh my, it's like, uh, uh, the body is like a television set and there's a broadcast coming in and the relevance about that is sometimes the television breaks you say the television's dead and I say yeah but is the broadcast still there and the answer is indeed the broadcast is still there that doesn't change because the body comes and goes and I said well what about it and I said well since we're being picked up by a specific set of proteins called antennas uh, self receptors is the biological name uh, the relevance is, what if a future embryo comes with the exact same set of self-receptors? No, no two people have the same set of self-receptors, I'll tell you right now. No two people are receiving the same broadcast. And, and the significance is that if an embryo shows up with the same set of self-receptors, then you're back online again. Now, can you communicate with them? Not through the physical means, because they're not communicating with physicality to us. Now, if you get your recognition, as we talked about, mind is not even in the body. If you get your mind in the outside, 
there's an opportunity of, at a level to communicate. Uh, let me just add this one because this is an exciting story to emphasize the nature of that we're still there. Um, there's a, a number of studies of people who uh, have heart transplants. And when they receive a transplant for somebody else, they start to pick up characteristics of the person who donated the heart. Now, some people say that's cellular memory. Um, as a cellular biologist, I think uh, you're giving great credit <laughs> of memory to a cell. A cell is lucky to remember if it's a liver cell or a skin cell, not if it likes chicken McNuggets and beer. Okay? But the story I just want to emphasize and close it with is simply this. A young girl received a heart from another young girl. And once the heart was implanted, uh, just shortly after, she had very vivid nightmares of, of being murdered. And they repeated themselves every night, every night. And so finally, uh, they, the doctor said, well, where did this heart come from? And it was from another girl who was murdered. And the relevance about that was the nightmares were so vivid that when the police questioned her about what she had seen, they were able to catch the killer. The point was the heart cells are still having the self-antennas of the person who has died. And so as long as the heart was still present, it was downloading the identity into that heart. And the relevance is, Yes, the girl's dead, but is, is she's still there. Why? Because if the heart has the receptors, it still shows that there's a source that's feeding this individual person. Between all this particular data, uh, it is profoundly, profoundly uh, important to understand the nature of some quantum physics, energy fields, and identity, and that we are not in this body. We are being broadcast to this body. Uh, to close, my second closing now, I think. Uh, <laughs> the second closing was, as a scientist, uh, and not spiritual for 40-some years, and then in one minute after understanding the nature of the membrane, I'm, oh, I'm, it's like two plus two is four. I'm not in here. It was, it was a, oh my God, I'm not here. And that, that concept of, of being outside, then being immortal, uh, was interesting. But then I wanted to add this part because I thought this was the exciting part about my connection with my spirit and my body. I asked myself as a scientist, I said, well, why have a body and a spirit? Why not just be spirit? Well, at that moment, 50 trillion cells welled up. An answer came right up through those cells. And that's when I recognized I had Jewish cells. Uh, I asked a question, and the cells answered with a question. And they're very funny cells, so here's how it goes. I said, why have a spirit and a body? Why not just be a spirit? And the cells welled up and said, Bruce, if you're just a spirit, what does chocolate taste like? <laughs> and if you get the answer for that is this. This is a virtual reality suit. You jump into the suit, you drive it around, the experiences of this suit are sent back to source. That's where we start to recognize your brain activity is not contained in your head. You can use magnetoencephalograph probes outside of your head and you can read your brain activity. So you're broadcasting back to the field. And that's why we can see a sunset. We can taste that chocolate. We can smell that rose. And all of a sudden it says, oh my God, we came here to experience life and to create. And then all of a sudden it said, oh, the whole story might be the biggest cosmic joke in the world. And that is this. We have been told that when we die, if we did a good job on planet Earth, we can go to heaven. I would like to suggest something. You were born into heaven. This is where you came to create. This is where you came to experience. If you don't like the creation, the significance as we talk about between Joe and Greg and myself is we're not living our lives, we're living the lives of programs. And if you don't like the program, the new biology is the one that says you can rewrite it. And if you rewrite it to make your creation not the one you bought as the creation, you will manifest heaven on earth. 
You will wake up every day with the glory of being in the most spectacular planet and the ability to create life. And that's what the joy is all about. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> I, I, amigo, I just, I, I, not much I can add to that, but one piece uh, that takes it well beyond the realm of, of theory. Uh, scientists now are very, very certain that our memories, your, let's make it personal, it's about you and me. I apologize, my back has been to this side of the room, and I, I don't know if, uh, if these pants make my butt look big when I'm in this chair to this side of the room or, or what. So, what scientists now know is, is the memories are not in the cells. And this is a very different way, this goes right to the heart of reincarnation. It's a very different way of thinking about things, but let me just give you an example. How many of you in here uh, are, uh, are musicians or artists? Any musicians in here? Or um, oh, I've learned a foreign language. Anybody here learn a foreign language? Okay, that's a good example. So you know when you, when you begin learning a foreign language, the words sometimes, uh, they seem awkward. You learn phonetically and you say the, the words, but they don't really mean much. And all of a sudden you wake up one morning and, and like you're speaking Spanish or you're speaking Tibetan or you're speaking French, or whatever it is. You know how that happens. All of a sudden, it's like almost overnight, you say, well, well what happened? Well, here's what the science is now telling us. All possibilities exist as information in the field. The information is not in the cells. What we do in the cells is we grow, and, and Bruce, it's exactly the term that I use, what are called soft antenna. So the, the way that the neurons wire and fire create the antenna that's tuned to the place in the field where that information lives, where that foreign language lives. I'm a guitar player, and when I, I'm trying to learn to, to play a, a song for one of my favorite, Michael Hedges was a, a brilliant uh, guitarist before he passed a few years ago. And to try to learn to play like Michael Hedges for me, uh, you know, I'd go through the motions, and one morning I woke up, and man, it was like I was thinking like Michael Hedges, and I knew what the tuning was. And you say, well, what happens in the space between when it's awkward and between when you've got it? And that is the answer to what this question is all about. When we, okay, let's, I'm just going to say it like this. It is the very act, the act of you striving to become more in one moment than you were in the last moment. It's the act of you reaching deep within yourself to, to grasp a new way of thinking. So a, a new language or a new song on a, a guitar, a piano, or a new book to write, or a new title, or new poetry, or new sculpture, new art, whatever it is, that act is the impetus for the neurons to wire together to create the antenna that reach into the field where that information lives that you are asking to have access to. But the thing is, it doesn't happen spontaneously. It takes about 72 hours, is what the studies are showing. About three days. And if you're with me tomorrow, I'm going to show you a little video clip of this. It takes about three days for the neurons to, the very social cells, they love to hook up. So it takes about three days for these neurons to hook up, to reach out and, and firmly establish the connection with another like neuron so that they're forming the antenna that tune to the place in the field where everything that you desire to understand or know or create or perform, it already exists. So the reason I'm saying this is if you are choosing to create something new and it doesn't come to you easily at first, please do not give up because it takes about at least three days for these antenna to wire, that is because the information is not in here. Just, just to add to this, how real this is, researchers in Silicon Valley are now building the next generation computer chips, and guess what? They're not based on silica. They're based on droplets of water that are purified and very, very specific forms of structured water. And when they started pumping the information into that droplet of water, 
the water droplet was holding more information that could possibly be explained by the chip itself. And they said, where is the information going? And now they know that the chip based in water is storing information in a field that expands beyond the machine itself. It is in the field. And that could not happen if these ideas were not correct. So I'm showing you it's going beyond theory that we're actually moving to build the machines to, to reflect what is happening in nature, what's happening between you and me. So when you think of all those things, back to the idea of reincarnation, what we're doing is we are tuning to information in the field. And we're using our neurons to do that. And, uh, and that, I think, is, is, and this is what all of our work is all about, the emotions that we have, the heightened emotions that Joe talks about and I'm talking about, those emotions are what trigger the neurons to combine, to wire in a way so that we can communicate with that field in, in a meaningful way. So it's new, new, a new, very different way of thinking for some people, but this is where the science is going, and I think it speaks directly to the question of, of reincarnation. Yeah, thank you. Well, this one is for you. So it says, Dr. Joe, this is from Gaynor. It says, Dr. Joe, can you suggest the best order to do the meditations? Question mark. It says, I'm doing the blessings of the energy centers, three, then four. Then I'm doing trance plus the mind movie. Then later on during the day, a walking meditation and another Botec, B-O-T-E-C, before bed. So can you suggest the best order and sequence? Where are you, anyway? Do you have a job? Look, I mean, all of this, you have a job, yes? All of this, the work that we do, really is to teach people how to regulate internal states independent of the conditions in their external environment. That when you finish a meditation, if you get up feeling the same way as you sat down, nothing really happened. Nothing happened neurologically, biologically, chemically, hormonally, genetically. You're still in the same state of being. But when you get up and you feel like an elevated sense of self, and your heart is swollen, and you are, have a clear vision of your future, and your energy is different, the question is, how long can you maintain that state? So you're literally broadcasting a whole new electromagnetic signature in that state. That thoughts tend to be electric and feelings tend to be magnetic. And the way we think and feel is what we broadcast into the field. And what we broadcast into the field is our experiment with destiny. So then when you go within and you disconnect from your outer world and you sit your body down and it's no longer experiencing anything and you're not thinking about your schedule, your past, or your future, as I said today, you're being defined by thought and you're making your inner world more real than your outer world. When you open your eyes and you present yourself to the world, the job then is to not react emotionally to the same conditions in your life, because the moment you react emotionally, you're equal to the conditions in your life and you're back in your past. So then when you fall from grace and you move off that state, then you sit down and you realign you begin to tune in again and you change your energy again. Now, when I'm going through change in my life or I have a specific outcome that I want to create, I love to get up early in the morning. That's my time. I'm a 4.30 in the morning guy because that's my time. The rest of the day I'm serving, but I love getting up early and changing and working and, and having some time to myself. And I believe that when I invest in myself, I invest in my future. And that time in my, in my morning, nobody bothers me because that's my time. And because of brain waves and brain chemistry, the door between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind is more open. And so if I get up early and I'm kind of between theta and alpha, I don't have to work as hard. I'm not thinking. I just kind of relax into the moment. In the evening, I always ask myself, how did I do? How was one lifetime in one day? Where did I fall from grace? What happened? And so... Then, when I look at seeing how I reacted to someone or something, or I made the uh, choice that I could have made a better choice, 
I naturally, and we all do this, begin to think, well, if the same situation happened again, how would I do it differently? And that's the act of beginning to come up with a new plan. The act of rehearsing it in your mind begins to install the circuits in your brain, priming your brain so that when the next experience happens, you could modify your behaviors and do a better job in life. That's called plasticity. So it doesn't matter for me what meditation I do any longer. I like to just get up in a new state of being. And so if you're doing the blessing of the energy centers in the morning, you're aligning your autonomic nervous system. You are literally each energy center is tuning into a different frequency. They all have their own frequency, their own energy. And as you do this properly and you're doing some of the more advanced blessing of the energy centers, you are actually drawing information from the field into your body. And if all disease is a lowering of frequency, when you begin to pull that energy into your body consciously, you're going to raise its frequency. So that's a great thing to do. If you're doing a meditation in the evening, of course, pick a meditation that changes your energy. But then, you know, the idea is not just to meditate so that, so that you can keep meditating, keep meditating, keep meditating. Your job is to actually see what the effects you've produced in your life as a result of it. I mean, why else would we do this? So then, if you decide, okay, I, if I'm taking time out of my busy life to emulate the divine, the creator, then if I'm going to create something unlimited, I better feel unlimited. If I'm going to do something magnificent, I'm a, I have to become magnificent. And if you keep doing that over and over again, it will begin to become more readily available to you. It will get easier. So then, to not be seduced by the external environment and not fall from grace and be able to execute and maneuver in your life from a different energy, lead with your heart, and begin to make different choices and not return back to those old states. That's why we do it. Because we want that, that new energy to become constant in our lives. And, and so when we're in that energy all the time, that's when the synchronicities and the serendipities and all those wonderful coincidences begin to happen. And it's those coincidences that are feedback in our environment where the field begins to open doors for us. That's what we want to occur. Now, I have worked on things in my life, and I'm a sincere person when it comes to this. I've worked on things in my life for years. And I always thought it was about the event or the experience I wanted to create. <laughs> but all along, I was changing. And when I finally reached the point where I could care less if I could have the experiences, the moment it happened. But all along, the divine, the loving intelligence, this mother-father principle, of course, it's, it's observing us into life. It is, we, are, we are vitalistic, energetic beings that when we begin to bond, you know, unify all these principles that we're talking about, you can't get this in one sitting. You can't. You have to keep understanding it, keep reviewing it, keep redoing it, keep experiencing it. And the new experience then causes you to dream in a way you would have never dreamt before unless you had that experience. And that's how God gets to know itself. So then, I don't care what meditation you do, I just like the fact that you're connecting. And the more you connect and the more whole you feel, the more natural it becomes. And then, of course, the next experience then causes you to dream in another way. And what I know from my own experience and many students, <laughs> it's not about material things. It's about those mystical moments, those transcendental moments, those moments where your jaw drops and you are in awe of life, those moments that take our breath away that cause us. And this has happened to me so many times. Every time I have one of those experiences, I think to myself, I got this all wrong. I am, I have, I've got this all wrong. Joe Dispenza, you, some veil has been lifted, and now I'm seeing more clearly about the way things really are. That's why we're doing this, to uncover the mystery of the self. So don't overdo it. I have people say to me, hey, um, I missed my meditation today, like I'm supposed to go like this or something. <laughs> and I say to them, eyes open or eyes closed. You know, eyes open or eyes closed, you know, when you're passionate about something. You know, when people can't get up in the morning and they can't get out of bed, I'm going to tell you why. Because they can predict the feeling of everything that's going to happen in their life. And their body's resigned to the familiar. It says, oh, another mundane day. But remember when you were a kid and you were going on a field trip? What happened then? 
you were up and dressed and ready to go before your parents were up. You know why? Because you knew something unexpected was going to happen. That's how we should live our lives. Waking up with the understanding to expect the unexpected and something unusual should happen in our life as a result of our efforts. And it's just those beginning moments where it begins to happen that we begin to prove to ourselves how powerful we really are. So take time in the morning and the evening and the rest of the day. Check in with yourself at certain times to see if you're still in that energy. And if you're not, excuse yourself for a second, raise your energy, and step back into your life. And if you keep doing that over and over again, you'll become less frustrated, less impatient, less judgmental. It'll just become something of the past, and you'll be someone else. Thank you. Can I ask these guys a question? So one of the things we love about this is we actually get to know one another. We've known each other for years, but we rarely get to see one another. So I'm learning more about you guys right now than I have for a long time. I'm just laughing because when Joe gets up, his getting up time is my going to bed time. <laughs> and so I'm curious, uh, and, and it's just different rhythms, except I have to say, when we do these conferences, I am so wired and excited to be with you. I'm usually up 3, 3.30, 4 in the morning. I wake up thinking about being with you, then I try to make myself go back to sleep so I can get what's called a reasonable night's sleep so that I can wake up again and come and actually be with you. So Bruce, what are your rhythm? What, what time? Are you a night person or a day person or what do you like to do? Nighttime. And, and I feel it because when I start trying to do work, conscious work and all that, it's sort of like less static is in the air when everybody's sleeping. Yeah. So when, when you write your books, do you write them more in the daytime or nighttime? Okay. When you write your books, daytime or all the time? Now, Joe, Joe and I, we were talking about this. Our, last, our most recent books, uh, Joe honored me with the invitation to write the foreword for his new book that comes out in two months. And, uh, and I, I did. I, I accepted. And he was asking me, he said, he said, pardon me? What's it called? Becoming Supernatural, How Common People Are Doing the Uncommon. With a foreword by Greg Brayton. <laughs> and and oh, I, I just have to tell you this, Joe, I don't know if you've seen the cover. They put my name in big letters at the top of the cover of your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you, my brother. So, so he, he was asking me, he said, when did you find time to write this? And uh, most of you know, I, I take, and some of you are in the room, I take a group to Peru, um, usually once, sometimes twice a year. Uh, and I, I've got a seven-hour flight from Dallas down to Lima. I formulated your forward on the flight down. I thought about it three weeks while I was there, and then I read it on the seven-hour trip back is actually when it happened. So people, you know, they sometimes they say, well, when do you guys find time to write? It's whenever, I mean, hotel rooms, air, airplanes, delayed flights, you know, and... But I want to tell you, the writing is the easiest part. It's the formulation of the ideas. Yeah. That is where the action is. And that can happen anywhere. That can happen on an escalator, in an elevator, in a conference. So um, I was just curious. I was listening. I, it was just, it struck me that he goes to bed when I'm waking up because that's, our alpha rhythms are, are very, very different. But fortunately, there's enough overlap in wake time that we can do these kinds of things during the day. So, so thank you. By the way, it's very interesting because that, that bewitching hour between 1 and 4 in the morning is when melatonin levels are at their height. And that is that verge of the mystical. That's when our brain waves are in alpha. We're in that creative state. And even in theta, we're in that. We're, we're actually piercing the veil where we're, we're actually in contact with more information because they're too tired for your analytical mind to really care. The analytical mind just finally gives up. And if you just get past that hump, and all of a sudden you get a second wind and um, a lot of my friends that are musicians and artists they love that evening time that's the time they create and me i like to wake up when everybody's asleep at four in the morning or 4 30 in the morning and it's quiet and i can start my day really fresh that's just me personally but it's the same principle you wake up in the morning you go to bed at night your brain waves are changing your brain chemistry changes the door between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind is wide open So, Richard, how much longer have we got this evening? Say that again. One, one more question. Okay. Richard has spoken. 
So this question, see I really wanted the personal question for Greg, but that's not fair because it leaves everyone else out. So you're getting off the hook. So the question we have is about transformation. So it says, we have heard a lot about the transforming power of thoughts. So I think you might want to start with this one. How in practice do we transform our thoughts so that they can transform our lives? Question mark. This is the our question. <laughs> no, basically to understand this, we have to recognize something very important and that is only 5% of the day are you operating from your conscious creative mind and 95% of the day you're operating from subconscious programs. If you ever get the opportunity and you like stop at a stoplight with your car and you realize it's not quiet in there, uh, you start to listen and you can hear dialogue with yourself. This is an opportunity if you listen to the dialogue to change the dialogue. You can hear it and you can say, oh, oh that's not going to happen. You go, no, wait, wait, that can happen. It's going to be great. And you have to really feed this back because you are creating. If you let the subconscious mind use its terminology and its, you know, what it wants to create, you're going to get not necessarily what you want. It's the conscious mind. The significance is this, is that 95% uh, of the day that we're coming from some subconscious, we're programmed already and our lives have been programmed before age seven. Uh, and then I said, uh, yesterday I said the matrix, I said we've all been programmed, I said it's a documentary. Uh, but then I said, well, what would happen if you stopped playing the program? And the answer is so wonderful because all of you have taken that red pill at some point. And that was when you fell deeply in love with somebody. I said, what was happening when you fell deeply in love? And I say, for the first time in your life, you stopped thinking because everything you wanted is now right in front of your face. And when you stop thinking and you become what is called mindful, then you are in absolute control. And I say, look, you, your life could suck every day until you met this person and then heaven. And 24 hours later, you can experience heaven. And what was the difference? You stopped thinking and started being present. And so it becomes important if you want to transform, then you stay present and you repeat what you like and repetition is what will reprogram your subconscious. So as long as you stop the old talk, put in what you want and repeat what you want, you have an opportunity to rewrite any program in your life. Uh, and it's really important, I'll be talking about uh, this tomorrow, but it's basically an understanding that um, the two minds, conscious and subconscious, have different functions. Conscious mind is creative, primarily. Subconscious mind is habitual, primarily. More importantly, though, they learn in different ways. The conscious mind being creative can learn in any number of ways. Listening to, to my brothers here, you, you can download stuff right now and just learn that stuff, okay? Conscious mind being creative, read the self-help book, uh, watch the video, even just go, aha! you can change conscious mind. The problem is subconscious mind is the habit mind. And habits do not change easily for great benefit. For example, when did you learn how to walk? Most everyone have learned how to walk before too. Did you have to relearn how to walk? Hopefully not. I say, well, you could be 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 plus years and you're still using the habit program. So the emphasis on subconscious is not to change easily, because if it does, then habits don't exist. So the issue is, then how can you change the subconscious mind? And there are two fundamental ways, because the first, these are natural ways. How did you learn in the first seven years? Hypnosis. So auto-hypnosis is a way of putting in a new program and transforming your life. Uh, after age seven, how did you uh, uh, learn after age seven? repetition, you repeat it, you made a habitual uh, a habit out of, out, of, out of the thing that you wanted. And so uh, this is where the fake it till you make it part comes in. But the issue about it is you have to recognize the biggest error that we have is that we think that if our conscious mind just became aware of something, that our subconscious mind has that information. Absolutely not. So if you want to transform and you want to get out of the old program, just educating the conscious mind will not do that. 
you have to do some exercise, some process, something. Uh, energy psychology is a new uh, way of, uh, of changing beliefs as well, very rapidly. But the point about it is transformation, uh, it, you have to do something. It's not just a, oh, wow, great idea, now my life has changed. That doesn't work that way. But the moment you understand how you can train the subconscious is the moment you are free because then you become the programmer of your own life. truly change, we have to get beyond ourselves, and that is one of the arts of transformation. And with the moment we are completely in the present moment, we cannot be running a program. It turns out, coincidentally, when we're truly in the present moment, all possibilities in the quantum field exist in the eternal now. So when we're truly present and we take our attention off our body, off of people in our lives, off of things, off of places, and even time. That's the moment, as I said today, we become pure consciousness. That's the moment now we are no longer playing by the laws of Newtonian physics. That's the moment we no longer have our attention invested in this three-dimensional reality. And where we place our attention is where we place our energy. So then the moment we become nobody, no one, no thing, nowhere, and no time, that's the moment we get beyond ourselves. It is that act of being in the present moment that allows us to see new possibilities that we could never see from the place where we are stuck in our own programs and personality. The act of doing that, as Bruce said, is a skill, and it requires feedback. And feedback happens in a couple ways. One way you get feedback is to begin to measure the changes you see in your life. Another way is that you feel differently. Another way is that the voice in your head goes away. It's telling you you can, it's too hard, you'll never change. This process, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And yet we are piercing a veil where people are waking up and they're beginning to take their power back. We already innately know how to do this. All we have to do is keep practicing until we start seeing those wonderful, wonderful feedback mechanisms happening in our life. The moment you start seeing those changes taking place in your life, you are going to pay attention to what you did to cause it. And the moment you pay attention to the cause of that action, you're no longer thinking that it's something out there that did it. You're beginning to realize it's what you did inside of you to produce it. That's when we begin to take our power back. And so making the act of getting beyond ourselves, finding the present moment. People unfolding into this unified field, that field of information, just because you can't see it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It actually is, the only way you can experience it is not with your senses, but with your awareness. And so then, as you begin to put more and more attention on it, what you place your attention on expands and you begin to notice more of it, and you begin to feel more connected to it, and you start feeling more whole. <laughs> and the side effect of that, then, is you feel less separate from your dreams. <laughs> if you feel less separate from your dreams, and you get up feeling gratitude, and you feel in love with life and a joy for existence, you would never wonder when it was going to happen. You feel like it already happened. And then all your job, then, is to not try to analyze and think about when it's going to happen, because the moment you do that, you return back to the old self. The new self would never think that way. So then it's a practice. And just like practicing a golf swing, or practicing a guitar, or practicing complaining, you just get good at it after a while. <laughs> but the same mechanisms work in the same way. And so then as we begin to change the way we think and feel on a daily basis, the hardest part about all of this is that mindfulness, is that metacognition. It's the act of thinking about what you've been thinking about. And the more conscious you become of your unconscious thoughts, your automatic behaviors, and your conditioned emotional responses, 
the more aware and conscious you become of them, the less unconscious you go in your life. But most people don't like to feel that discomfort. They'd rather turn on the TV. They'd rather surf the internet. They'd rather get on the phone or text because it distracts them from that feeling. But the question is, you could do it now or you can do it later. And so finally, people are waking up to say, hey, I'm not going to wait for that moment. Every day I'm going to start to become a scientist in my life and to measure the effects of me at cost. And it's just the process of doing it where things begin to fall away in your life and new opportunities begin to show up and you start making those correlations and connections, the empowerment that you feel increases your belief in possibility. And when you begin to increase your belief in possibility, you trust in the unknown. can't trust in the unknown when you're living in survival. The unknown is a scary place in survival. We are conditioned to run from something that's unknown. But yet, when you are truly in that elegant state, and your heart is open, and your mind is clear, and your brain is coherent, the unknown becomes an adventure. And now we have to lay down the very thing we used our whole life to get what we want for something greater to occur. And that means that we don't have to go and get it. If we truly change our energy, we draw the experience to us. And now that's when it gets fun. I just, yes, yes, to everything I'm hearing. I, I just want to add one more thing because the metaphor of the Matrix has come up yesterday and again today. How many of you saw the movie The Matrix? I mean, saw that. Okay. So remember in The Matrix when they would hook that little gadget to the back of their neck and they would download the programs and learn those things almost immediately? Remember that? The equivalent of that is what we did together in here yesterday, and that's why I wanted you to have it yesterday, and it's the answer to the question that Bruce was asked. When we choose to make those changes in our lives, Bruce is saying you can't do it through your conscious mind. When you create the heart-brain harmony, that coherence, it's called optimum heart-brain coherence, when you've got that 0.1 hertz signal between your heart and your brain, that opens the door to the subconscious. That's the equivalent of plugging that cable in right at the, at the base of, of your skull. And it's at that place where you insert the new beliefs, the new thoughts, the new ideas, the new ways of thinking. That is you downloading that, that new information very, very quickly. It takes work. It takes work to change the way that we have been conditioned to live and think. And I'm just going to close with what I mentioned on Friday night, Khalil Gibran, he told us very, very clearly, he said, work is our love made visible. I think that you are worth the work. Your life is worth the work. This world is worth the work. I'm worth the work. My brothers are worth the work. So it's worth making that effort, our love made visible. <clears throat> our love made visible. And with that, I'm just going to close for, uh, for this afternoon. Thank you all for being here with us. I appreciate it. All right, so that was um, that was uh, Greg Braden, Dr. Joe Dispenza, and Dr. Bruce Lipton uh, talking next level psychology, next level spirituality, and realization of the self. So, yeah, you know, a lot of shows out there, whether on YouTube or podcast, whatever, they really get overly enmeshed in the negative energy and the negative element the dark side of the equation of what's happening right now and again that's not going to feed us we need to make uh we need to assure that we're taking the two two-fold approach where we're we're dealing it from both ends the darkness and the light so that we can come to a complete wholeness or a complete understanding in a balanced nature in a balanced way you know you get stuck down that negative um, energy hole and you you know you get into that alex jones the black helicopters are coming 
the black helicopters, Walmart has them, you know, like, and, you know, I'm, there's a lot of truth to what the guy's saying, but I mean, give me something that's going to feed me, you know, give me some Greek philosophy, some Eastern philosophy, give me some Dr. Bruce Lipton, you know, that, that really picks me up. I, I love Bruce Lipton, man. He's, the one thing I love about him is you hear the genuine spiritual spirituality innately within him, you know, all, all of the speakers are really good. You know, Joe Dispenza is very technical, very scientific, very analytical very very valid in what he's stating he's just stating it from a different paradigm what different lens than than dr bruce lipton and again with Br greg Braden, i guess he's kind of more in the middle he has uh similarities between the other two so again i really do want to thank you for listening my email address is alpha male buddhist at gmail.com any feedback suggestions whatever i'm getting uh really good feedback i'm getting really good comments and I, I enjoy that. And I, again, I want to thank you for listening and namaste. And namaste. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com.